Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, uh, Dan and Benny coming to you from a special remote episode of Juanced. Uh, how you guys doing today? Yeah, what's going on, Benny? I'm all right. Uh, we're a little coroned out here over here in Israel. Uh, we're doing this remotely because we're on lockdown for the second time. Uh, Dan and I both have had various weird scares in our households uh, of what we call in Israel bidud of isolation. Uh, Dan's daughter uh, was in isolation. I think she's still. No, she might no, be she, out. She's, uh, she had to go into quarantine. She's broken out. And now my wife is in isolation because they decided that the entire school that she teaches at had to go in isolation. So I'm struggling with the kids by myself. So a little disclaimer to all you listeners out there. From time to time, there may be some noise in the background. I'll try to do my best to mute that. Uh, I can hear them now. (laughs) You can hear them now. The little dinosaurs. The little dinosaurs. Uh, So we're here today uh, with... A very special guest that I'll let Dan introduce, but this is a very important episode leading into uh, actually this period of, of the year, the the high holiday period. So without further ado, Dan, please introduce our guest for today. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, if anybody's uh, watching the news here in Israel and everyone kind of pays attention to what happens this time of year, uh, something really fascinating happens in the kind of Jewish world, the Jewish landscape, and that's uh, tens of thousands of Jews Hasidim and and ultra orthodox and orthodox and hippies and secular and Mizrahi Jews uh, from Israel, but but I think even from other parts of the world, flock make pilgrimage to this little town, this kind of random town in the middle of the Ukraine. Uh, Benny, have you ever heard of this phenomenon of what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm what I'm alluding to? The phenomenon of the Ukraine. The well, not the Ukraine itself. Uh, what happens? Why do all these Jews flock to the middle of the Ukraine uh, at this time of year? Before I answer that question, every time I hear the phrase "the Ukraine," I will only <laughs> and always remember Kramer playing Risk. Uh, <laughs> the Ukraine is weak, uh, like a guy from the Ukraine, and then they get into the tussle. Uh, yes. yes, I've heard of this phenomenon. I've had friends that have visited the U- the Ukraine visited Uman on this on this uh, pilgrimage uh, I even I remember one time was 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 hit up for money from a friend who needed some uh, <laughs> some tzedakah to to make this journey so I'm familiar with it I haven't gone myself maybe later in the podcast I'll tell my famous Ben Gurion airport uh, uh, special substances past security 
having to do with the Ukraine Uman pilgrimage. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. So, you know, this is something I think a lot of our, uh, um, our Israeli listeners will have heard of it. Some of our American listeners might have our other international listeners and they're growing. Uh, we now have listeners in I think 23 or 24 countries uh, might not have heard of this incredible phenomenon. And it's, it's fascinating. And it's tens of thousands of, of Jews flock to the grave of Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, um, a, a former and old Hasidic rabbi who's buried and who lived in the middle, literally in the middle of Ukraine in this town called Uman, a town of about 80,000 people, whose economy centers around this annual pilgrimage of tens of thousands of Jews. And so we wanted to learn about this thing. When I first heard about it, when I first discovered it, my first thought was, this is really cool. My second thought is, what the hell are they doing there? And my third thought is, how can they, these people leave their families to go in Israel? How do you leave Israel to go to the middle of the Ukraine for for the holiest of the high holy days? And so we uh, went out and found ourselves uh, an expert on uh, this issue. And we are so glad to have with us Dr. Moshe Weinstock, uh, or Weinstock, as he says in Hebrew. Uh, Moshe is a pedagogical advisor, a teacher of Jewish philosophy, uh, he was previously in charge of pedagog pedagog. How do you pronounce that word? Pedagogical. It's a hard one. Affairs. It's a hard word uh, at the Israeli Ministry of Education. Um, so, if anybody has issues with what's happening in the Ministry of Education, we we can take up uh, our complaints uh, at least for a certain period of time with our guest. But most importantly for us, Moshe uh, in 2011 wrote and published a book, an Israeli journey or the Israeli journey to the grave of Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. I'm sorry to our non-Hebrew reading uh, fans. It is only in Hebrew. It is Uman Hamasai Israeli Lekivro Shel Rabbi Nachman Breslev, and we are happy to have Moshe with us to explain to us this crazy phenomenon and maybe take us on a virtual journey there. Welcome to Juans. Hi. Where are you speaking to us from? Where do you live? I live in Gush Etzion. I'm speaking now from my house, from my living room. Also, I'm isolated in the Corona issue. Uh, I met a friend last week that uh, is ill now, and now I'm here. <laughs> You're in bedude. Stuck in home. You're bedooded. Are, are you are you strictly bedooding, or do you have other people in your house that are taking care of you and, and going and doing your shopping for you? No, no, I have uh, my family here. I'm in the living room and in my room, and uh, they have the other uh, rooms at home. You have small children, Moshe. No, I have big children. Uh, two, I have two. I'm, <laughs> I'm married. I have two children. One is 25, one is 23. And uh, maybe now one is uh, after, and on my side. Now he came. So it's funny. We, we often say here, the little, little side note here, we often say here with, I have small kids, as you guys know, um, going on Bidud does have a silver lining if you have small children, and that is you get a little bit of a two-week vacation from them. But that's the only thing good that can come out of it. Anyways. I interjected, so go ahead, please. I had to get a corona test this week uh, because I had a scare. I didn't actually have to go into Bidud, but I was exposed to someone. Long story, not that interesting. But I went and got a test because um, I didn't want to be exposing other people. And it is uh, not pleasant. I will tell you that much. I think the, the phrase that you told me, Dan, was if you turned out to be positive, that perhaps the test would be the worst part of the experience. It might just be. It might just be. <laughs> but I want to hear about Uman. But let's hear about Uman. So uh, Moshe, 
tell us what, explain to us, what, what the hell happens there? What, what's going on in the middle of the Ukraine every year? Okay, so first of all, it's very interesting. It's an unbelievable issue. Every year for the uh, last 30 years, more than, uh, it started with a few thousands, and now more than uh, 40 or 50,000 Jews from Israel, mostly from Israel, uh, like a thousand or two thousand from the States, and uh, like a thousand from uh, France, uh, get to Uman. It's a very little town in the middle of Ukraine, four hours from Kiev, four hours from Odessa, and they do their the whole Rosh Hashanah in very, very interesting and unconvenient situation of living, of eating, and uh, praying all over. It started when I was the first time there, uh, 15 years ago almost. It was very hard to be there. People were living in tents, and today there are hotels, but a lot of people have very inconvenient issues and, and uh, living there. But they come for two or three days, and a few of them for five or six days if they don't have money uh, because the flights are uh, cheaper, and to daven and to worship and uh, to do avoda, spiritual work, mostly of Rabbi Nachman's work in Rosh Hashanah. So let, let's take a step back here. Uh, Rabbi Nachman or Rabbi Nachman, uh, I mean, I've heard of him. I think Benny has heard of him. He was a, a famous-ish, maybe Hasidic rabbi. Uh, tell us a little bit about Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the historical figure. Who was he? Where did he live? I assume he lived in not in, in Uman or around there. When did he live? Um, maybe what were some of his teachings or his influence at, at the time? So, first of all, it's also very interesting because Rabbi Nachman in his life was a very little rabbi. He was a grandchild of uh, Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidut. And he was a very little rabbi with a few Hasidim. Uh, around what time period are we talking about? Around what years are we talking about? He passed away when in 1815 when he was 39. And he had very little influence in his life. He had a few Hasidim, but his Torah, his learning, had unbelievable influence all over the Jewish world. <laughs> I'll tell a few anecdotes that can help. When I was in the JCC uh, in Manhattan and they did yoga, they quote Rabbi Nachman's quotes all the time. And the word kibbutz in Israel came from the Breslov Hasidish in Uman. They call it the kibbutz. And when in the 20s, the secular people in Israel didn't know how to call their uh, places, one of them, Ya'ari, said, I was in Ukraine and I saw the Hasidim of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov go to Uman. And they call it the kibbutz. Let's call the kibbutz kibbutz. And so, they, so what you're saying is the origin of the very secular, anti-religious Israeli kibbutz, right? The communal kind of socialist uh, living experiment and farming experiment comes from very religious people in the Ukraine. In Uman. Going in to Uman. Uman. Yeah. So... Uh, all over you can see shows about Rabbi Nachman and uh, Shai Agnon, the Nobel Prize, um, wrote on him, and Pinchas and Amos Shokens, it was uh, one of the biggest editors in Israel, um, what had a lot of influence from him. So Rabbi Nachman today has a huge, huge influence in Israel and all over the world, the uh, Jewish world. 
when we say um, Hasidish, I mean, to a lot of us uh, Israelis or those kind of more steeped in the Jewish world, it's very clear. But for those, uh, for our non-Jewish friends or for those who might be less connected to, to the Jewish world, uh, it, when you picture kind of that stereotypical cartoonish Jew with, you know, maybe the big fur hat and the uh, and the long locks and the big beard, this is what we're talking about, uh, Hasidim. Can you, can you just give a very quick uh, you know, kind of one sentence on on what Hasidim are as opposed to other kinds of Jews? Yeah, the Hasidut, uh, Hasidish issue or revolution started in the, the 18th century and uh, they said uh, that you need to work, worship Kadosh Baruch Hu a lot more emotionally, a lot more with uh, the heart and not only with the head or the mind. And uh, they spoke a lot about the simple people, the simple Jew, like the fiddler on the roof. It's a good uh, yes. image of, of a Hasidish, happy all the time, and uh, speaking to Akadosh Baruch Hu directly, not through rabbis and not through halacha, speaking directly to Akadosh Baruch Hu, happy or working on being happy, and uh, working uh, on the on the heart and, and worship through the heart. And a very, it's a very uh, spirituality, spiritual um, world in the in the Jewish world, um, and it was against the very um, mind addicted halacha world that was in the 18th century. So this this revolution was brought about by uh, a rab a rabbi uh, named the Baal Shem Tov, and uh, just a cool story. My wife's family are actually descendants of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, which uh, outside of the Hasidic world is not a big deal, but inside the Hasidic world, that's considered uh, being very, descendants of, of royalty. <laughs> yeah, it's a very big deal. Like, and Rabbi Nachman was a grandchild. Aren't there like 40 gajillion descendants of the Baal Shem Tov, though? Didn't the guy have like, wasn't he like the Jewish version of Genghis Khan? Like he just had loads and loads <laughs> of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So like, one out of every five Jews probably can count themselves as a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov? Could be. It's like descendant of David Melech, you know. Not quite, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so, so we have this Baal Shem Tov, and then how does uh, Rabbi Nachman connect to him? So Rabbi Nachman uh, was his grandchild. Uh, okay. And, and what, was, what is very interesting in Rabbi Nachman's uh, learnings and, and quotes and books that he didn't speak theology. He spoke to the working, uh, simple man. He spoke about falling. He spoke about, about not being completely tzaddik. He spoke about people that have depression and how they need to work on, uh, on being happy all the time. And what's interesting, and that I think is one of the things that he's now so uh, spread uh, all over today, that a lot of, of very modern and even new age issues are in his Torah. Like you can see in his uh, learning, he's speaking about being in the present, now and here, leaving the world, being now and here. He's speaking about it, it's like, it's like meditation, going to the field every day for an hour, Speaking to Hakadosh Baruch Hu alone every day, as a halacha, you need to do it. The Hasidim every day do it, but they do do meditation every day, work on being happy 
everything working about speaking between friends. It's a very big issue in their, in the, in their learning. And what is interesting is that a lot of people today all over the world and in Israel go to Rabbi Nachman more from more than all the big rabbis because he speaks to the simple suffering uh, or not suffering working man. And he suggests, he suggests how to handle your uh, living in this world. Is this um, a Jewish, I mean, anything that I guess any, you could say anything that a Jew does is Jewish, but is there a basis for this in traditional Jewish thought? I know you teach Jewish philosophy, and, and uh, it, it, or where was he getting these ideas? So in the 1800s, uh, um, a Hasidic rabbi, relatively young Hasidic rabbi in Eastern Europe, where is he getting these kind of ideas that today we would say maybe they're kind of new agey, maybe they're Buddhist, I don't know how would we describe them, but this is not what we know of as classical Judaism or classical rabbinic Judaism. Very good question. The truth is, I think there are things that he took from the Jewish world, and he only spotted them with light. Like he puts light on, on things, and, and there are things that the truth nobody knows from where they came. They didn't come from the East. Abidahan uh, didn't know India then, but he felt the trouble uh, that the Jewish, uh, simple Jew, was in his time. You know, the secular world started to raise us, and the reform world started came from Germany and from Hungary and started to to get into Ukraine. And he struggled with it, and he tried to help, to give help to the man, the, the simple Jews that want to work Hashem as it was always, but he has a hard time. And I think we don't know really part of the thing for where he took hmm. Was there, um, you, you said he was the grandchild of, of the Baal Shem Tov, the first, the first Hasidic master. So, so this, is at a, this is interesting. I never thought about this way. This is at a time in Europe when the Enlightenment is taking place, perhaps not in Eastern Europe, but in Central and Western Europe, the Enlightenment, which brought about Jewish secularism for the first time. Uh, it's taking at a place where one of the introdu- one of the things that, the Enlightenment period brought about was the reform movement or efforts to kind of modernize and, and reform uh, both lowercase r and uppercase r eventually um, the Judaism and, and to intellectualize it and to completely bring it into a modern context. So you're saying this was a parallel development, a parallel effort to, um, you know, if everyone's going in one direction of being uber intellectual, he was going to go in the exact opposite direction of being completely uh, emotional and heartfelt? Is that kind of the, the approach that he was taking? Yeah, and we know that he met uh, the Enlightenment people. He met intellectual in Lemberg and he he learned chess and they played with him chess and uh, he spoke about the doctors and leaves the doctors a lot of time and about throwing the mind because the mind is, uh, is confusing and uh, he was very deep and, and very also a very, very smart, but he spoke against intellectualism and a lot more about the heart. And what is interesting is why Rosh Hashanah and why Uman, because Rabbi Nachman, he didn't live in Uman all his life. He lived in Breslov, and that's his name, Rabbi Nachman from Breslov. 
but he asked to be uh, buried in Oman because there was a very big massacre of 30,000 Jews in Oman a few years before. And he knew that nobody will come to their grave. And he asked to be uh, buried on their grave of the 30,000 Jews so people will come to his grave. He didn't speak about coming to his grave, but he in Rosh Hashanah, but he spoke about Rosh Hashanah. He, he told everybody, Rosh Hashanah Sheli, my Rosh Hashanah, is the biggest thing in the world. And he spoke to the Hasidim and told them that everyone that will come to his grave, even if he fell down and did sin, sins, and uh, every man or woman that will come and do hitvadut, confession, about his chataim. His sins. Yeah. And will give tzedakah and will tell Tehillim, he will take him out from hell. He spoke about Rosh Hashanah, he spoke about coming to his grave, and he told his daughter that uh, when she'll come to his grave, she can speak as in, to him as he's alive. So people after he died, especially Rabbi Nathan from Nimirov, that was his biggest, uh, biggest Talmud uh, student, the true disciple. Yeah. As it wrote, everything we know about Rabbi Nachman, and they started to go in Rosh Hashanah to his grave, and there are very interesting things that they do there, and because of what he said, they say to him, they give tzedakah, they confess on their sins, they go to a mikveh to litbol, they do it bodedut, and there are a few days there in Rosh Hashanah that ten thousands of people come and do uh, what he said, and it started after after. Is uh, dying after he died. So this this concept of going to a rabbi's grave and confessing your sins doesn't sound very Jewish to me. This sounds very Christian. Um, is there is there a is there a tradition in Judaism? I know today people people uh, in Israel at least like to visit the graves of what we call kivrei tzadikim, the graves of saints. Uh, saintly Jews is, is in in when we're talking about in Hebrew, um, uh, Sephardic Jews like to go to the grave of uh, um, oh the name is escaping me now. Um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. No, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, of course, who lived uh, during during the Roman era during uh, two thousand years ago. But uh, Babasali. the Babasali was a famous Moroccan rabbi who who uh, made Aliyah, who immigrated to Israel, uh, and 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 on. Uh, Lagba Omer, there's a tradition of people going to Mount Meron to the grave of uh, Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, and, and in general, there's kind of, it seems to be that there's this trend of making pilgrimage to the graves of rabbis. To me, you know, uh, you know, we, we've told our listeners on previous shows, I, I grew up in a, a very reform household and I've become kind of more in the direction of uh, observant in um, later in, 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 well, when I grew up. And nowhere in, in my kind of Jewish experience or connection did I ever connect to the graves of, of saintly rabbis or saintly people. It doesn't seem very Jewish to me. I mean, the whole kind of concept of monotheism, as I see it, is that we're supposed to be able to connect to God directly and we don't need interlocutors. Um, is this concept of going to Kivret Sadikim, to the graves of saints, is this... Um, you know, where does how far back does this go in Judaism? How widespread is it? Is is Rabbi Nachman's grave unique in this? Benny, you wanted to add something? Well, I was just going to add. I mean, also 
when you were explaining the concept of going to his grave, confessing your sins and being absolved from ever going to hell, I, you know, I'm, I'm confused by that because in my Jewish context, I, I wasn't aware that Jews believed in hell. So this is all sounding very, very Christian to me, to be honest. So it's strange. And no offense to any Christians who are listening. But, uh, it just doesn't sound Jewish. Right. We love Christians. So there are a few questions here. I yeah. I'll start with hell. Gehenom is a is a place that a Jewish a lot of Jewish sources speak about. It's like hell. It's not a very main issue, but after a man died, he can go to Gan Eden or Gehenom. So it's so not you can go to the, the Garden of Eden or what's known in Jewish text as Gehenom, which Gehenom loosely translates to hell. Hell, yeah. So it's not a very big issue, but it, it's not unique to Rabbi Nachman. About your question, Dan, it's very interesting. You know, you never heard about uh, graves or tzaddikim uh, graves because you're Ashkenazi. My uh, wife's uh, mother from Morocco, they lived in Lausanne. In Lausanne, there was a very uh, big, famous rabbi that uh, was uh, buried there. Uh, and people pilgrimage to his, to his grave all the time. So in the Mizrahi, uh, Jews in, in, in North uh, Africa, in Iraq, Kevin Mordechai Nister, uh, people did pilgrimage to, to graves, and it goes back until the Midrash at least 1,500 years ago uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't buried uh, with a grave, so people won't go to his grave. Nobody knows where he's buried. Right. So, so it's a very antique issue, um, and Hasidim uh, do it a lot. And it's very interesting because people, Ashkenazim, that go to Rabbi Nachman's grave, it's very hard for them because there's, how can you go to graves? And the Mizrahi people that I uh, interviewed didn't have problems. Like, we're going to graves, that's fine, that's okay. Everybody does it. It's very Jew. The big question that everybody has is the monotheism. And that's a question, you know, do I ask the rabbi? I speak to the rabbi, he's dead. I speak to God. So what the Bresover says all the time, and that's their theology, they're not speaking to Rabbi Nachman. Uh, there are people that, that are, but they speak to Akadosh Baruch Hu, speak to God, and that place had a very big energy of Rabbi Nachman, that his bones are there, that it can help you to raise your davening to Akadosh Boku, uh, to God. Um, but the truth is, a lot of people there speak to Rabbi Nachman. Say, Rabbi Nachman, help me. I want to tell you what happened. Uh, let's speak. I came after a very big journey this year to tell you that my wife is sick and I need money, etc., uh, etc. Et but the theology is uh, is that you don't dive in there, you don't uh, worship, you don't speak to Rabbi Nachman, you speak to God. For some people, it the act of going to the grave of Rabbi Nachman or any rabbi uh, can seem like like idol worship, maybe like Avodat Elilim, uh, whereas you know we're supposed to be monotheists and talk directly to God. So there's a difference here, if I understand correctly, between the theology and uh, what we kind of can call in uh, sociological terms the elite religion versus the folk religion, how people actually interpret it and actually practice. Yeah, but also actually there are people that actually speak there to God and not Rabbi Nachman. And they, when you ask them, when I interviewed them, 
they told us, they, they told me that the place is full of energy. It's a lot of energy that lifts them and they feel unbelievable feelings there. And there were a lot of people, judges and intellectual and doctors and professors and uh, also Hasidim that, that spoke about speaking to God. They, they're not speaking to Rabbi Nachman. They're speaking to God and the place is full of energy, of spiritual energy that they only put their hand on the grave and, and they're flying. Other people, other people, and it was very, a lot of people told me that they got there first time, second time, or after a day or two, they put the, the hands on the grave and they had a, a like a intense spiritual, um, and, and they felt unbelievable feelings that they never felt. On the other hand, there are people that actually speak to Rabbi Nachman. Um, People that uh, speak to Abnachan, speak to him, ask from him. Uh, if you'll ask them, so theologists, they'll say they're not. But, but when you go there, you, you hear them. They say, Rabbi Nachman, help me. My wife is sick. I need money. Um, please help me. Uh, he insulted me, etc., etc. Hmm. It's funny. You, you mentioned uh, how Ashkenazim view this versus how Mizrahim or people of, of Middle Eastern Jewish descent. My family's half and half. And so I can definitely see, even though my, my uh, Mizrahi family is very secular or secular traditional-ish, uh, they're not especially religious, but there is, um, you, can, you can see a difference in approach on, on these kinds of things, especially with the older generation. And I remember uh, the ones who came from Iraq talk about the grave of, uh, the graves of Ezra and Nehemiah in, uh, in Iraq that they used to go uh, visit. Um, so as to the, the grave of Rabbi Nachman, so the, it's interesting. I didn't know that he asked to be buried there so that people would visit the graves of the 30,000 or so Jews who were massacred uh, in the 1800s in Uman. Um, so were there his Hasidim, his followers, were they making pilgrimages since his death and until, until this became a mass phenomenon? Is this, has this been a regular thing among his followers? And how many are we talking about not now. Let's go back a little bit before this became a bigger deal. How many people would be at his grave regularly? Let's start from uh, the fact that he didn't have a lot of Hasidim. Hillel Zeitlin writes about uh, the cloys of Breslov in, uh, in a few places. It was unbelievable, but they didn't have a lot of Hasidim. And, uh, but we have, uh, we have a lot of witnesses that saw Hasidim go all the years in Rosh Hashanah to Uman. Um, there weren't so many of Hasidim, but there were a lot of problems between other Hasidim and them, and uh, between secular people and them. But the, we even have a witness that saw a Hasidic Breslov in 1942, in the middle of the Holocaust, in the maybe hardest time in Ukraine, like 41 was a... The Nazi went into Ukraine, 42, a breast of Hasidi, a Hasid, that went to the grave in Rosh Hashanah, and davened and ran away. So all the years, uh, there were Hasidim uh, in Uman in Rosh Hashanah, except of the, the communist issue. When the communists took over, there were very little. 
How, when you say there were very few Breslov Hasidim, uh, how many do you mean? What is a few? What is a lot when we're talking about Hasidim? And then were there other Hasidim who would have visited his grave? Or historically, would it only have been the Breslov Hasidim? So there was a grave where Rabbi Nachman only the Breslov Hasidim went until 30 years ago. And when we speak about very few, we're speaking after the Holocaust, maybe a few dozens of people. That's all. We're speaking about 50 or 60, less than 100 Hasidim of Breslev all over the world. Wow. And before the Holocaust, how many would would have been? Uh, maybe a few thousand, hundreds of thousands, thousands, I think, but but very few. They were very, very, very small. Also, they were very, people didn't like them. They they called them Toite Hasidim. <laughs> they were Toite Hasidim that the, the river was died and they were very simple, and uh, people laughed of them and make fun of them. And uh, I remember my grandmother speaking about the Breslovers when she understood I'm uh, doing a research woman. She was almost collapsed because she said the Breslover Hasidim <laughs> they, they are Hasidim who they are they are nothing. Uh, today it's a very big empire. How, how, uh, what are some, when, okay, so you say, you know, hundreds or maybe a thousand at most uh, until recently. What were some of the bigger Hasidim? I mean, just to give uh, our audience a sense of comparison, when we say small groups versus what are like some of the big groups and how many people are we talking about? We are about? speaking in Poland and uh, Ukraine about uh, groups of Hasidim of uh, 30, 50,000 people. Um, okay. Not one Hasidut and not two Hasidut. There were a lot of, of groups of 30, um, 40, 50,000. And Breslov were maybe 2,000 all over. Okay, so then, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have a situation where there's a very small following of Breslov Hasidim. Um, and after the Holocaust, of course, they're completely you know, decimated as were I'm assuming most of the Hasidic groups and most of European Jewry, to be to be frank. And then in recent years, Breslov starts becoming a bigger deal in Israel. So can you kind of take us through that? Why? I mean, we kind of touched on it earlier, but what happens in Israel that the writings and the teachings of Breslov start becoming well, I was just going to say, you know, all of us more that influential. Made out of Israel Benny wanted to add something. You know, travel to Israel, remember. You know, the, the vans that drive around blasting the music off the top of the speakers that they've rigged up there. And it's like, what is going on with that? Right. If, if anyone's not been to Israel or for those who have maybe just visited once or twice, you can drive around. There's these kind of party vans with speakers blasting like techno music. And Hasidic people who who will hear from us in a second are, are Breslov or a kind of Breslov Hasidim. And it's a very, uh, <laughs> we talk about cognitive dissonance to see, you know, ultra religious uh, kind of hippies basically dancing in the middle of the street to techno music. So, so what's, what's happening here, Moshe? What, what happens in Israeli society with Breslov Hasidut and with the teachings of Rabbi Nachman? So, so it started not only the, in Israel, it started also in the States with a very good book of green that they, wrote about Rabbi Nachman Breslov, but since the 70s, in Israel, the Hasidut of Breslov had a reframing. Reframing, there were a few Balei Tshuva, uh, people that became Breslovers, 
that started to speak the branches of her um, learning in very simple and interesting uh, language. And because it's so uh, existential, and because it's so speaking in modern world and in new age world uh, words, uh, people that had a journey, a spiritual journey, and wanted to get more clo- close to Kadosh Baruch Hu, close to the Jewish world, thousands came to Brussels. There were a few big rabbis that spoke very strongly, very in modern wo- uh, words, very interesting words, and thousands of people came to Breslau. We're not speaking about Uman still. We're speaking about Hasidut Breslau and getting close to Rabbi Nachman. And they were... Right. And they were very, very powerful people, rabbis, that spoke uh, and brought people into Breslau, and uh, a lot of artists and a lot of uh, very famous people. Uh, and, and, And also... A few very interesting groups, like the groups hippies that uh, started with the band. It's a very little group in Breslau. The name is Na Na Nachman Meuman. That they are did a very uh, good work in Pratik Shotit. Um, yeah, PR uh, communications or kind of uh, yeah. PR yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, and uh, they did a very good work that a lot of people were curious to see what is happening there. People are happy, people are working, people are doing meditation in the Jewish world, and they came to do a very intense work, but, but they wanted to, to belong to this uh, cult and this group in Jews, Jewish world that has those interesting things. So it grew up unbelievably since the 70s. When, when, um, I, I mean, I've seen them, I think we've all seen the, the funny, kind of big white kippa with the tassel on the top um, that says in Hebrew, na, 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 nachman. What, where does that come from? I mean, the rumor that I heard, or kind of the explanation I heard, that he had a supposedly a stutter. But uh, I don't know if that's true or not. So where, where does the na, na, nachman so come that's from? That's a very little group uh, of women uh, party of women people that uh, they had a rabbi, his name was Dovo Deser, that he had a hard time, and Rabbi Nachman, uh, that was the story says, came down and wrote him a note uh, that he will help him and uh, help him to be happy and help him with worship. And the signature of Rabbi Nachman was Na Na Nachman Uman, and Nachman from Uman. And uh, it started to be a very famous writing in Israel. Uh, they put it in the kippahs, they put it in the vans, they ride it on, uh, on bus stations, but it's, it came from the snow. But it's not a, a main place in Breslov. So when you say, you know, main place in Breslov, can you kind of just give us an overview today? When we talk about people who call themselves Breslov Hasidim, how many people are we talking about? And then... Uh, you said, you know, the people with the vans and the, 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 the funny hats, that's kind of a small group. Is there kind of subgroups within the Breslov Hasidic world, people who are maybe more hardcore Hasidim versus people who are kind of like, are, are there divisions or is it kind of just all one big happy group of Breslov followers today? The, the, the main old fashioned uh, hardcore of Breslov live in Masharim. They are very ultra, ultra, ultra haredim people. 
Masharim being the the heart of ultra orthodox Jerusalem for those. Yeah, and they have a shul there. The name of the shul is Shul. Yeah, <laughs> and and when they branding yeah, when in the sixties they built it, nobody thought that they'll need it because it's so big, but it's full. It's full today. That's the main hardcore of Breslau. There are a few very big groups of Chovodrim B'Tshuvah, very powerful rabbi, Rav Arush, and Rav Berland, and Moharosh, uh, all over uh, in Jerusalem and out of Jerusalem. And uh, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, modern religious people, secular people, that in their hearts, when you ask them one-on-one, they'll say we're very close to Rabbi Nachman Breslau. Part of them go to Oman, part of them don't go to Oman, but there are a lot of people that will say characters, very well-known characters in Israel, that will say we are very close to Rabbi Nachman, we are very admiring him and his learning. And so it's hard to say, but we're speaking about, I think, more than 20,000 people or 30,000 people in Israel that will say we're Hasidim of Rabbi Nachman Breslau. I know Chabad does, uh, you know, when we talk about the different Hasidic groups today, and, and there are probably a million people who are Hasidic around the world today, maybe more. When, when we talk about Hasidim, Chabad is one of the big movements, and they, there's a lot of people who become, uh, we say, uh, people who become religious, who are not religious, who become Chabad. And we, we hear about the people who become Breslover. Are there other Hasidic groups who also actively recruit uh, Jews or were Jews kind of who were not religious flock to them or most of the other, I mean, I'm kind of just speaking from my impression, um, most of the other Hasidic groups seem to be more insular, whereas the Breslov and the Chabad seem to be the ones who are more trying to approach, you know, kind of the average Jew on the street. Most of the Hasidim don't reach people, don't try to bring people Chabad and Breslov is the only... I'll say another thing. Breslov uh, doesn't have a center. It doesn't have a main uh, you know, character or people that say what to do. That's very, very basic thing in, in Breslov because a Rebbe died. So they don't have a Rebbe. They have a lot of uh, powerful people that can say things, but you don't have people that are in charge of Breslov. Nice like Chabad or other all other places, and it helps a lot of people to be inside and outside. You know, they believe in Rabbi Nachman, but you know, you don't. I don't have another Rabbi. I, I have Rabbi Nachman. That's all. And there are thousand or or more than thousand people that will say I'm a Chosid of Rabbi Nachman, but I don't have a Rabbi, uh, and they nobody will say me to me what to do or how to or how to do what I. Do. So every year, you know, I've been here for 15 years, Benny, 16 years. And, and, and since we've lived here, you know, the people making pilgrimage to Uman has been, has been a big deal. It's a famous deal. Uh, and, and we'll talk about what's happening there now, um, kind of a little later. Um, there's a big mess uh, kind of taking place there now. But when did this start becoming a more popular thing to for people who are not specifically Breslov Hasidim, to, to make this Rosh Hashanah pilgrimage to Uman. When, when did this whole kind of trend start? The big issue started um, after the falling of the communist government um, in Russia. 
uh, when people could go without problems. Before people went all the years, or almost all the years, um, it, with a lot of uh, problems, but, but since uh, the sky was open, so people start to go every Rosh Hashanah. And since people start to go, it became a very big festival. Uh, I think, uh, except of uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that is a very little pilgrimage where people go two hours and go back home, that's the biggest pilgrimage in the Jewish world today. And it's the longest. Between three until six days that people aren't home, they go to, to pilgrim. Uh, including a very hard journey on the way, as you uh, said a little bit, uh, to, to go to Ben-Gurion uh, Airport in Rosh Hashanah is not a, a lovely <laughs> experience. Uh, it's very hard and people uh, have a hard time on the way and uh, it's almost 12 hours to get to Oman before Rosh Hashanah. It, even though it's a three-hour three flight. flight and four-hour um, driving, but uh, hours of driving, but uh, to go, if you have, if you're lucky, it's twelve hours. Oh. So, so it's hard, and people live there a lot of times in very, in a very little apartment, in tents, in the hard places. I think it's part of the journey and part of the experience. And people like sacrifice, uh, like we see all over the world in, in pilgrimage. So it does a very um, intense emotion issue. Take us on this journey, if you can. Um, take us to Uman, right? Because uh, uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to make this journey. I do. Uh, I don't know if I'd ever want to, but I'm certainly like curious. But this year, nobody's going anywhere. Um, because of Corona, I would totally so, do it. It uh, sounds like a trip, even even if you're not into it. Just to say see that it. again, Benny. I mean, to, just to see a whole bunch of thousands of people descending on this crazy Ukrainian town, where nobody—it's—it just seems like the most random thing in the world, and it's—and it's obviously not random, but the the sight of it just seems to be a, a wild thing. No, it it sounds like it could be described as maybe a Jewish Woodstock or a Burning Man type uh, event. There's something in what you say very deep something. It's very interesting because I went once because I was curious to see and then I started my research. And I interviewed like 50, almost uh, 60 uh, people that go to Oman, secular, Mizrahi people, religious, uh, very uh, hardcore from Asharim, ultra-Orthodox. And it was very interesting because every group comes for something else. Um, the the non-religious people are curious. They want to go to Woodstock and, and see what a Jewish Woodstock looks like. The the team Lumim, the modern Orthodox, they come because a lot of them feel the shul, uh, the synagogue is not filling. They don't feel anything, and they want to feel something else. They want to feel connection to God. They want to feel what is davening, real davening is. Uh, and they have a very hard journey, intellectual journey. Uh, so they can go. They, they're going to graves. They're going to Ukraine after the Holocaust. They leave Eretz Israel to, to, to daven. It's like breaking their whole beliefs to go there. And they are Hasidim. All of, they are Chabadnikim. They are uh, girls, they are Hasidim 
from all the types, and also Haredim that are not Hasidim come. There are no women. In the last three, four years, there are more women there. It's a very interesting issue. But they go, everybody goes from his, from his uh, point of view. But it's very interesting that they, when they get there, they start to worship, like Rabbi Nachman says, they do it but they do it. So they go to the lake, a very, very cold lake, a freezing lake to, to do a tevila and to go into the water. And they, they, yeah, the, the Jewish, the Jewish custom of dipping in a natural body of water yeah. to, to purify. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll give you a, an anecdote. I, I interviewed a guy, 23 years old that lived with his uh, girlfriend in Germany. He lived for two years in, with his girlfriend uh, in, in Germany. Let's call him Tom. In, uh, in the book, I call him Tom. And then she, she <laughs> threw him out. And he started to go all over uh, Europe by a bike. After a year of uh, biking, uh, his, uh, his sister told him he was in uh, Krakow. His sister told him, wait a minute, Shana. Go and see what is going in Uman. So he drove by bike from from Poland to Uman. When he got to Uman, he was uh, with a hair, long hair, on his bike, without kippah, of course. He got to Uman. He was after trying. Somebody tried to rob him, and he went into Uman. And a very ultra ultra Hasid saw him and told, "Wait a minute, where are you sleeping?" Where do you eat? Come to my house. And he took him into his house in Oman, and they gave him to eat and to drink. And he said it was the first time in his life. And he was an Israeli guy after army, after everything, and uh, school, first time in his life that he spoke to ultra uh, Hasidic in, in his life. He said, the first time I, I, I knew it, there are people there behind the... The black uh, customs. The black hat. And this is- that's really interesting. Um, that, that's interesting that, and you hear this a lot, you hear this a lot, but that, first of all, that Israelis, secular Israelis will often discover Judaism outside of Israel is something that you hear a lot. And secondly, um, you know, the connection, to be able to connect to religious Jews and especially ultra-Orthodox Jews, because in Israel, uh, I think it's really hard. It's really hard to connect with each other because there's so many layers of tension and there's the political tension and the public tension and the kind of clash over what is our lifestyle going to be. And maybe when you leave Israel, you know, you're not clashing over the public space. You can just be people. There, there's no politics involved when you're in the Ukraine, right? Because Ukrainian politics is not Jewish politics. You know, in the US, I think you can you can see that as well. And And I remember the first time that I was hosted by a Haredi family. They weren't Hasidic, but the first time I was hosted by a Haredi family, uh, again, I grew up uh, reform and, and I only started becoming more religious later. Yeah, the sense of uh, of hospitality, the sense of uh, like pure hospitality, and I'm not saying secular people aren't hospitable, but it's very different in the ultra-Orthodox world. And especially if you go to an Orthodox or an ultra-Orthodox family on a Jewish holiday or on Shabbat, it's um, it can be a life changing experience. 
and you say, right, these are people and these are very genuine and warm people. And this is amazing. And what is in this lifestyle, especially if you feel like you're missing something, what is in this lifestyle um, that could be appealing to me? And I know, um, you know, when I was in college in the States, I had this experience and a lot of my friends who also didn't grow up in religious Jewish households had this experience of, of being hosted by ultra-Orthodox families. And all of a sudden, this made a stop. And, and I don't know, some of them became ultra-Orthodox and some of us didn't. But it, it did make a stop and kind of reconsider our own Jewish journey and our own Jewish experience and what, you know, maybe something's missing. This is this is a deep experience. And I can imagine, I can imagine more so for an Israeli alone and having gone through this kind of upheaval to connect in this uh, experience abroad. Yeah, so Tom, yeah. when he got there, and he, the first time in his life he spoke to ultra-Hasidic man, and he saw that it's a human being there, and then he had unbelievable dreams in Uman, and he, he didn't have a penny. And uh, the ultra-Hasidic people, actually a few Americans ultra-Hasidic people, uh, took from all over uh, $1,500 uh, and gave him for a ticket. So from there he went back to Israel. Now it's not it's not the only uh, man that said that the uh, guys that says that he had their unbelievable changed life experience, uh, and, and there are a lot of uh, uh, secular people and religious people that had there. Now a main issue there is like uh, the hearts are open, open to each other. They they feel there. That you don't need to bring food. You go in the in the street and people ask you, "Did you eat? Did you need? You want to eat something? Complete? Can I help you?" Where's all this food coming from? I mean, uh, can you give us a visual? Um, uh, I, I go, Benny and I, we're gonna go on our first uh, virtual journey. Maybe we'll do a real journey, um, and we get to Uman, and it's the week of Rosh Hashanah. What do we see? Give us a visual of what we're seeing in the streets. Who's there? Um, you know, are the, I mean, I, I've seen some pictures and stuff on the news. There's tents and this, but w- w- what are the Ukrainians doing at this time? And, how and many and Jews are there? To say, even kind of before give us that, a, how does a, a it actually tweet? go about? Like, how do you organize a trip to yourself to Uman? Do you go to a travel agent? Do you uh, do you do you buy a ticket? You know, yourself to Kiev. When you get there, is there a bus that picks you up? Do you have to get there on your own? Uh, how, how does it work? Most of the people, they, they are agents uh, that you, you write in Google, going to Uman Rosh Hashanah, and you'll have uh, a lot of agents. So you buy a ticket, you go to the to the airport, you wait six hours to the pl- until you get into the plane, four hours until in the plane, until all the people are coming from the duty-free, and they, they remember <laughs> to come and they stop smoking, and then you have three hours there. <laughs> Of a, of flight, and the, the, you you get to Kiev or to Odessa, and then a bus takes you to Oman. You get to Oman. You need to get organized before with a place uh, uh, to sleep, friends, agents. You have a lot of options. You can go to a hotel. It's very expensive. You can go to a room because all the Ukrainians go out for Rosh Hashanah, and they uh, rent their houses. Would you call it maybe a good idea for a business? Can we call it Air B <laughs> Nachman B or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it can help. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people uh, tried it. 
air wrestler not come on to be. <laughs> a lot of people tried it, but this year they fell down, you know, with the corona, with the COVID nineteen. So, so what well, what is an expensive hotel in in the in the town of Uman cost? I'm just curious. In North Carolina, it could be what kind thousand dollars of, of of service. Oh wow! Uh, does that buy you? <laughs> so, so it's only in the last ten years they have very good service there. In the last ten years, until ten years ago, you you had only apartments. You had apartments or tents. In the last ten years, there was a very big. Uh, a rich man from uh, from uh, the United States, Zinger, that did a very big achnasat ruchim, achnasat ruchim, helping in in uh, sleeping and eating. So thousands of thousands of people uh, buy a ticket and get the whole food from him. And wow, it's it's wow. unbelievable. You can see it in the internet. Uh, I think more than twenty thousand people get food from him. And he brings from. We'll post. Uh, we'll post a video on the show notes. Moshe, um, you'll send us a video of this so people can get a visual of what this looks like. So, is this when when we see the the giant kind of army tents and, and kind of cafeteria style makeshift food? Is this what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, and uh, they're all the time, day and night, coffee, tea, and cookies for everyone that wants. You don't need to buy anything. And nothing, and you can uh, take coffee, tea, cookies day and night, because people work there, worship there day and night, like at three o'clock, everything cool. And when you go in the street, when you go in the street, you can see a lot of communities, minions. Uh, every every wherever you go, you can hear a chauffeur. You can hear, you can see people davening. It's full of all of Rosh Hashanah. And it's very interesting because before Rosh Hashanah, it's a very big mess. When Rosh Hashanah gets in, everything's silent. Like silent, and then it starts again, the davening and shofar. And after Rosh Hashanah, everything like uh, is music starts, everybody uh, are dancing all over, and people are on their way home. So, so people go there and they spend the whole week. Is is this kind of the idea? This festival. What else is going on? I mean, obviously during during Rosh Hashanah, there's praying, uh, and you said there's different prayer groups. Um, you know, kind of setting up and popping up all over. Uh, first of all, how, I mean, how big is this town uh, that can hold thirty thousand, you know, Jews at, at you know one time for a week, uh, and then kind of. Is it just kind of random, or is there any sense of organization happening here? It's a very little town, and the area of Rabbi Nachman's grave, the old cemetery where the Jews of the massacre were uh, uh, buried there, is like two kilometers on two kilometers. It's very little, and it's very, very crowded. So people are are all over there and it's there are people that go a little bit more far to Oman but but it's a very little town uh, generally and and people are all the time near the Tzion. the Tzion is a grave is the name of the grave and go to the Tzion, go near the Tzion, davening in the last few years it's even bigger so people are spreading out but but most of the people are there it's very little uh, and there are hundreds of minions, you know, a Chabad minion and a Mizrahi minion 
And on the tomb, on the grave, there are a minion of maybe 3,000 people. Uh, and the shul minion of the very um, hurting ultra-Orthodox people. And what happens, it's very interesting because the ultra-Haredi see the secular the first time of their lives also. So one of them that I interviewed, he said to me, listen, my child is 10 years old. He will never see a man like you, a modern Orthodox. Never. I won't go to, to weddings with him that they are modern Orthodox. And here he sees techno music that's uh, shouting Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman all over and non-religious people and people with, it's very interesting when you go to the mikveh, you see all the tattoos of the people. You know, so, so he said, he said, he says all the time, it's the first time that my son can see those things. It's very confusing. So it's a very interesting event that everybody is like messing on part of the intense issue. But I wanted to say that we can see it in our programs in the world. Like a very... A lot of what? A lot of what? Sorry. What do we see a lot of? We can see those uh, motives in a lot of pilgrimage in the world. Like in pilgrimage, also to Mecca and also to, to Beit HaMikdash. When they went, they say, Kol Yisrael Chaverim, that everybody is together. And we can see people that do pilgrimage all over the world and uh, they, they feel their hearts are open. Because after such an intense journey, that they want to go to God, and people are, are coming to be together, everything is open, and everything is, is like, it's like a, another place, it's ex-territory. It's like an ex-territory of working out of home, out of the, the politics, out of the family, out of the kids that go all over, uh, and people come uh, to do an intense journey and experience. And it explains a lot of what happens. Interesting. Yeah, I have a good friend who um, a few times, and every time he can, he's made this pilgrimage. And he's a Mizrahi guy, a religious Mizrahi guy, and, and he loves it. And, I say, and, and it's hard for me, I'm starting to understand it a little bit now, but it's hard for me to grasp. You know, I see how hard it is on uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, you got to cook and prepare the house and, and, you know, there's a lot to do. And so how can you just say, okay, bye wife and kids, I'm, I'm going now for a week, you know, I'll see you later. But, um, you know, I, I guess maybe it's not so different than a businessman who leaves, you know, regularly and leaves the, the family uh, or a businesswoman uh, who, who leaves regularly and goes for a week here, a week there. Um, I guess we, we all have kind of our different priorities on, on when we're leaving our families. And there's a lot of rumors uh, and kind of the stories that we hear in Israel that it's all drugs and prostitutes there. Uh, and I think a lot of our listeners who have heard of Uman are going to be curious um, to, to know, you know, how much of that is, is true. I mean, I, I'm sure that, you know, those kind of things take place everywhere, but how much of is the drugs and prostitutes, the story, you know, and is a, you know, the kind of rumors that, no, they're all going because of drugs and prostitutes, or is it a sideshow or is it so minuscule that it's not even really a story? So uh, it's very interesting because everybody in Israel speaks about the prostitutes and the drugs all, all the time. And I was very curious to research to see if it's uh, true or not. And I also my research, but also Ukraine researchers say in 
that it's a legend or a lie, whatever. The, all the people that I interviewed and also the researcher, uh, woman researcher, uh, Ukraine woman researcher that I spoke to, didn't see it at all. I don't know what are you, t- are you talking about. I'm speaking about the prostitute. About uh, drugs, you know, weed you can see in Israel and there, but I, but, but it's not more. It's not more than Israel or the States. Um, so it's a, a legend. And uh, I was also curious about leaving the family. And I interviewed the women. It was a very interesting issue. And with what I saw, that a lot of times, more the Mizrahi people, but a lot of times the women were the engine. The, maybe they didn't want the, the <laughs> husband's home, but, but they send them. They send them and they, they told me he has to go the whole year is standing on it. Our, our blessing of the year is there. So, so a lot, I didn't see anyone. I saw one that they went without, not the permission, but the, the wife was very angry about it. But most of the people go with the full strength of house. What was very interesting to me, I'm living, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor and I, I live in a more orthodox community. So when people told me, wait a minute, you go to Uman to pray, I told them, no, I'm going to research. So they said, oh, okay, for research, it's okay. No problem, you can go. Uh, so for research or money, it's okay, but for davening, it's not okay. I think it's a priority of the of community. Um, but were you were you changed? Were you changed by your experience? I know you went there as a researcher, but did you come away saying, "Oh, there is there is really an intense spiritual experience here," or or did you come away saying, "Okay, that was really interesting research"? I mean. Did they change you on a personal level? So my PhD is, is in Jewish history of the 19th century. I went to Oman first time because I was curious. It was interesting. It was, uh, I told myself, like you tell me yourself, what is happening here? Let, let's see. And then I started the research and then I, I did the book and then I didn't go. But a few years afterwards, I started to go every year. And like, uh, not every year, but you know, but, but I went a lot of times until a few years ago that I stopped. But, but, but I found it a very, very uh, intense, spiritual, very um, magnificent experience. There are people that, uh, if you ask me if to go, if the, to fly there, I, everybody's asked me, I said, I said to them, I will say to them not to go. Don't go. Because if they are they're very, very curious and they very want, they will go. But people that go only to see, it's a hard issue. It's a hard uh, journey. It's not neat. Uh, everything is very crowded and very filthy. But people that go, a lot of them say it was very magnificent. In the first two years, I didn't feel it so much. But uh, after I went a few years ago, a few years ago for a few years, I felt it uh, almost every year uh, that it was very uh, magnificent and very. So, so, so you're now going, even though you've published the book, you're you're now going for your own personal spiritual reasons. You're still going. So I stopped after uh, I I went for research. After the research, I finished, and and like I think four years after the research, I started to go again, and and a few years I went, and now I finished with it. So uh, maybe, maybe. Interesting. 
Well, we've been <laughs> making the parallel between Benny. Uman and uh, Jewish Woodstock, and uh, you know, we talked about prostitution and drugs, but you know, it brings up an interesting thought, which is, you know, amongst those drugs, there's probably psychedelic drugs, and I'm just wondering if there's ever sort of like a connection or a place of the use of psychedelic ju- drugs in Hasidic Judaism, because it seems like it would the themes that are trying to be you know expressed are. Uh, suitable for that in, in, in a way? So I heard on, only on one group that uh, they told me that they think they did their psychedelic drugs, but, but uh, from all the people that I interviewed, they didn't see psychedelic drugs. They saw weeds, but weeds you have in Israel, and, and there are no prostitutes, but uh, it's a pilgrimage. You know, in India you have pilgrimage, and in, in a lot of places you have pilgrims and you feel very similar. And the truth is uh, that a lot of people feel they're a very uh, spiritual energy. Um, I think the, it's not Woodstock. You know, people come there to worship. People leave their houses. They, they don't go to do fun, most of them. They don't go to leave their houses and, and have good time. And they don't have, you know, it's not uh, sitting in the grass and, uh, and uh, going to the lake. People have a very intense time in the holiday. The holiday that uh, is supposed to be very, very nice, eating home with uh, nice uh, tools and, uh, and uh, forks and uh, whatever. Uh, they eat there in plastic, uh, plastic uh, plates. Yeah, just disposables, right? Yeah, disposable, like uh, single-use uh, silverware, plates, forks, knives, uh, those sorts of things. You said dirty. What, what do you mean by dirty? It's a, it's a dirty experience. What does that mean? Dirty means dirty. Uh, 30,000 or 40,000 or 50,000 people on two kilometers is filthy. It's Like trash? There's trash, trash everywhere? Trash and... and doesn't smell always very good, and and Ukraine can't take all the garbage. You know, it's unbelievable garbage in three days. Fifty thousand people come to one, two, three kilometers with all of the. A lot of them bring their food and their, uh, you know, their wine and their. There are a lot of alcohols there, uh, you know, because of kiddush. So people drink, but uh, it's dirty. It's dirty and it's crowded and it's hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, you're you're describing it, and I'm hearing it like that, and it doesn't sound very hygienic, right? It's not a fun experience. You're saying if you're going there looking for fun and for a vacation, this is not. It's not a vac- This is not what's happening. It's not a vacation. It's more like going to a week of meditation. You know, you go for a purpose, and you know you won't eat good, you won't sleep good. Uh, if you're in a hotel, you're in a hotel. Uh, so there are a few that have. Hotel. In the last uh, year I was there, I was with an American community that has a very good place there. They bought a place there with 40 rooms and a very interesting, unbelievable rabbi that uh, they have their mikveh and they have their uh, sauna and they have everything in their place. I'll, tell the, I'll say that in the last, I think, five, six, maybe seven years, there are more Americans there, a lot more Americans. 
hmm. get there, and also French, Jewish French. Are the Americans going Orthodox, or is there also secular or Reform Americans who are discovering Most this? of them are ultra-Orthodox. Ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, like I don't think you're going to see uh, the Jewish Federation of Marin County doing a, you know, an annual mission to Uman anytime soon. You know what I mean? Interesting. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot now in the news here in Israel. I don't know. I don't know how much of this. Uh, I doubt any of this is making it over to the U.S. But uh, with all the COVID uh, closures and travel stops, Ukraine has is not allowing people into the country, and uh, Israel had a resurgence of uh, COVID, and we're back in lockdown, like we talked about. And there's the the ongoing kind of news saga, which I think is over, of uh, two or three thousand hardcore Hasidim who got trapped on the border uh, of the Ukraine um, uh, in in awful conditions. And you know, on the one hand, it's it's kind of you want to say it's their dumb fault for going without food and without blankets and uh, without warm clothing and not having proper assurances. On the other hand. They're people, and, and you feel bad for them for the situation that they, that they uh, you know, they're people and they're fellow Jews, and they got stuck in a bad situation, whether it was their fault or not. You still feel bad for them. What, uh, what happened? I don't know if you have any insights into what happened this year. What ended up happening in Uman? Did people get in? What was kind of the story around that? I'm not really inside the story. There are a few hundred people, Jewish people, that live in Uman, live all the year. Live there year-round. And they're still there. And there are a few that came like a month ago. And they're not a lot. But there are a few thousand that are stuck on the borders. I think uh, from one hand, from one hand, it's like, uh, it's chaval, it's a pity for them that they're suffering. On the other hand, I think it's very, it's helping for the ideal of Mishibot Nefesh. You know, they went to the Rebbe, and they did whatever they can, and they're suffering, and Akadosh Baruch will open their, the gates, and they, they will tell their kids about that time that they went with COVID-19, and they didn't uh, surrender, and they went to the border of Belarus, and they were stuck there for a month for the Rebbe. So it's Chabal, it's a pity, but you know, it's, part, it's part of the legend of getting to Oman in every price. And, uh, yeah, you saw the the kind of footage. I think it was Israeli journalists who went to the border and the kids. You see these kids there who are, you know, what, are, what do they know? Like, uh, we haven't eaten in three days, you know. It's just kind of a very difficult picture to see. And, and yeah, it's a pity. It really is a pity. Um, yeah, most definitely so. And uh, and not an easy thing to see people that are uh, that are suffering or outside like that in times like this. It's uh, not a pleasant situation. So... I mean, that's really fascinating, kind of this journey to Uman. And, and it, I know uh, it's given us a uh, kind of new perspective on what's happening there. Um, maybe a little bit more of an appreciation for uh, for this uh, is, is really interesting phenomenon in the Jewish world that I'm just I'm sure a lot of our listeners and a lot of people outside the Jewish world have never heard of. Uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe Woodstock isn't the right thing, but but it is Certainly, the biggest Jewish pilgrimage outside, maybe unless you consider the Chabad Rebbe uh, Rebbe Schneerson's house as, as a major point of pilgrimage for Chabad and non-Chabad, and then you can add this as a major point of uh, Jewish pilgrimage outside of Israel, and it's not an easy pilgrimage, and people are doing this every year to have this intense, uh, really intense religious and, and spiritual kind of moment, this this awakening. 
Um, do you see this getting bigger? Do you see this coming to a place um, where more Israelis will go, where more women will go and, and kind of women will carve out a spot for them, uh, where more secular people will go? Um, where where kind of, if you can um, picture this trend 10, 20, 50 years forward, where, where can you imagine this going? You read my mind. That's an excellent, excellent question. There were years that it uh, became bigger and bigger. Um, I think in the last five years, we're on the number of 40, 50,000 people. I don't, I don't know. You know, I never know, but I don't think it will get, get a lot bigger. And it's massive. 40, 50,000 is a lot of it's people. It's massive, and 20% of them or, or 15% are new people. So people come, have a very interesting journey, mostly a good journey or, or intensive journey, and they go home. Uh, but, but a lot of people, it's 40,000, it's 50,000, 10,000 new people every year. It, it's really massive. I'm not sure it will grow, but it's a very interesting issue is the women there because there are more and more women every year. And uh, <laughs> the last year that I was, I saw near the grave is Rat Nashim. A separate section for women to pray in an Orthodox setting. People that, that oh. really, really daven there on the grave, like 20 women. And when one of the rabbi of Sabag sold Aliyah, so one of the women said, I want to buy. And they started like, uh, who will bring more money, the men or the women? And she bought it. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Um, that's really interesting. Is there a line, I, by the way, like when, when you're there, is there a line to get up to the grave itself? Like, do you have to wait in line? Uh, it, it, it depends when, but, but it can take you an hour. Um, you can get in the area. But it can take you an hour or two hours to get to the grave. It uh, depends when Rosh Hashanah and the day, day before. The best time, uh, if you're going down, the, when you'll go, the best time is, uh, is two, two and a half at night. Like in- so obviously the pilgrimage has a large economic impact on the town of Uman, which is a town that everyday Ukrainians live in, and that's probably not something that's not seen by the, the authorities in Ukraine, and it's probably appreciated very much by the, the people that live in, in the town. Uh, and I'm wondering if, you know, you could touch for a second on, you know, the feelings of people that live in the town towards the Jewish people. Obviously, their relations or their, their mindset of who the Jews are are defined by who they see coming to the, town, to the town. And then also, how much of Israel's foreign relations with Ukraine are defined by this pilgrimage? We've, you know, we've heard in recent years there's you know, efforts to maybe bring Rebbe Nachman's body to Israel, and that's greatly opposed by the government in Ukraine and, and, and you know, in all governments in Ukraine, even before this one and this, you know, maybe there was hope that with a Jewish president in Ukraine uh, with, with uh, Vladimir Zelensky that maybe that would change and it's not changed. And, you know, is that an issue anymore? Um, so, so what's going on in the diplomatic frontier? First... You know, when people are uh, speaking about bringing the, the bones of Rabbi Nachman uh, to get buried in Israel, you have here two sides. The economic side, the Ukraine uh, government gets a lot amount of a lot of money every year from it. And the second is the Breslov Hasidim, that a lot of them also don't want to bring uh, Rabbi Nachman to Israel. I think there are two reasons. 
first of all, is a massacre. You know, people are going to pray on the massacre grave. But I think it's also an issue of uh, power, power and money. People bought their uh, houses, the, the people, the co- Congress, the conference in Uman gives a lot, a lot of power to the Breslev uh, Hasidim. And if it would be in Israel, you know, people will go on bus and in two minutes they'll be there and then they'll go. It's not the same. And, and they know it. And uh, that's about uh, bringing Rabbi Nachman to, um, to Israel. But it's a very good question uh, how people in Ukraine look at the Jewish comment. There are people that get money from it. You know, the close people in the, in the kilometer of the grave get a lot, a lot of money from it every year. But there are a lot of, uh, I saw my, in my eyes and people that they interviewed spoke a lot of, about anti-Semitism and uh, about Ukraine, people, people from Ukraine that uh, hate the Jew, Jews there. And you know, after 50 years without Jews, thousands or thousands of Jews come from the grave and look the same with the Hasidish, uh, you know, uh, clothes come to Ukraine back. It's not easy. And on the other hand, also the Jews there have a lot of, uh, they also have a lot of the Goyish there. Like after the Holocaust to go to Ukraine, Everybody that learned history, you know, you go down from the plane, there are uh, police, uh, police officers there with big, uh, big uh, dogs, and you feel, everybody that I interviewed spoke about how they feel uh, with the Ukrainians. It's a very complex issue. Also, the Ukrainians that see the Jews come back, thousands of them from the grave, like, 78 years ago, and also the Jews have come back, and a lot of times they feel very uncomfortable with the uh, soldiers, officers, uh, uh, police officers, and dogs in to Ukraine. Be, so it's complex, yeah, and it's part of the, 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 the whole issue. I mean, it, it's a pilgrimage of 50,000 people that are descending on this small town. They have to have a, a massive force to be able to monitor what's going on. You also have the dynamic of it being mostly men, many of them younger, many of them, like you just said, maybe not having you know so much respect for the authorities in Ukraine uh, based on historical precedent and, and whatnot. Um, you know, so I wonder how much of it is perceived or fits into a certain narrative and how much of it is actual, you know, Ukrainian anti-Semitism and wanting to, to, you know, make the Jews feel like uh, they're not at home. I understand the Ukrainians and I understand the Jews and it's complex. You know, I went one of the, one of the time in the research, I went to a very nice place there and, and they took my Yarmulka, uh, my kippah out and it started like uh, to go all over me. Uh, it, it was very not uh, very frightened, but but you know I understand when uh, fifty thousand people come to one kilometer and all the trash and all of the garbage. Uh, I understand both sides, but it's there. Sure. You know, it's in the air. Do you see a trend where this will become more commercialized and an easier thing? I mean, I, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet. Uh, more, you know. Maybe uh, uh, to make it an easier journey and an easier stay while you're there, and kind of to, to 
commercialize or industrialize the whole experience a little more? Today, it's a lot easier than 10 years ago because you have you have food, you have hotels. It's a lot easier than 10 years ago. But more it will be easier, I think it will be less popular. Hmm. That's interesting. The, the, the kind of the hardship of it is part of the uh, part and parcel Most of the definitely. experience. Yeah, I think so. That's really interesting. I was just going to say that from a tourism perspective, it is interesting that there is such a demand that's there year after year after year, yet nobody, you know, local innkeepers and you know, businessmen buying apartments aside, you know, the fact that there isn't, uh, you know, an international hotel presence there, the fact that it's not capitalized on the way that you would see, you know, for example, uh, in India, people capitalize in Varnasai, for example, there's, there's major world-class hotels there for people to come and experience the pilgrimages that take place there. Uh, I know the same thing goes for you know certain Buddhist pilgrimages in China. Um, but here, yeah, there, there is that element, like you just said, of wanting to maintain, I don't know if it's like you call it like a homish type atmosphere or, uh, you know, just a very grassroots type atmosphere. But yeah, there, there's, a, there's definitely a, an, an appeal there. Um, and I can see that too, even as a casual observer on the side. It's much more appealing to me to be able to understand the Uman pilgrimage in that way than if Uman was like, you know, some sort of a Disneyland Vegas experience where you had the Holiday Inn Express and a Hilton Five Points and there's a Weston up the street. And I also understand that that's not necessarily the clientele, but if that was the, if that was the way that it was, it wouldn't be as interesting. Um, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's the, I know that, from people that, uh, that that I know, like if you yeah. go, if you're a Muslim and you go on the Hajj today to Mecca, you know there's there's different solutions for all different types of price points. So you have people that are staying basically in tent cities, which the Saudi government may, you know may, uh, maintains, and then you have you know six star ridiculous uh, accommodations where you basically have personal butlers and so on and so forth. But here that's not the case. You have probably amongst the most affluent of people that are coming there a desire to get down to their roots and be one with the people as opposed to uh you know isolating themselves within their comfort zone so uh, i appreciate that as well and i think that that's a part of the pilgrimage that even this one that has not been there and does not know if i will you know i don't know if um if i'd want that to change so you know this is this has been just uh, absolutely fascinating um, yeah. exploration into in, into this Uman. Yeah, go ahead. I Moshe. would add another thing that there are also pilgrims of women to Uman, not in Rosh Hashanah. There are a few times a year that only women go to 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 Uman, and it's closed for men. And it's very interesting. Hmm. And the, all the year you have also uh, journeys. All the year, every every week, journeys to Oman and to to Mezhibuz, uh, the Baal Shem Tov's place. Uh, but there are a few times that Oman is only for women. Interesting. Interesting. And also good to know. Um, so, you know, we're kind of all sitting here and, and maybe our listeners can hear uh, the kids in the background and see that we're on split screens because of uh, COVID and, and closures. And uh, you're in Bidud, Moshe. My daughter was in Bidud, but his wife is in uh, is in Bidud. What's that? <laughs> I sarcastically said that I wish that I was in Bidud. Give me a break from all the kids running around being all crazy and whatnot. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, before you became a, a teacher, maybe while you were a teacher of a Jewish philosophy and a pedagogical, yeah, I said it right pedagogical consultant, um, you were also uh, kind of a senior figure in the uh, Ministry of Education. 
Um, I'm curious from kind of your insights and your experience as our children are trying to learn on Zoom and both Benny and my wives are teachers who are trying to teach on Zoom at the same time. Um, what are your insights, if you have any, on um, how we should be approaching school during a time of COVID? Um, you know, should we be on Zoom? Should we be in person? Should we be thinking about things entirely differently? I'd be, we'd be really curious to get your thoughts here. Very interesting. My postdoc is on uh, virtual learning, about digital, digital learning. Uh, and I worked a lot about digital learning before the COVID-19 started. Um, now, I think it's, we didn't deal with it so good in Israel, but it's a very interesting issue. But I think uh, it depends what age are we talking about or speaking about. The little ager, ages, it's a lot harder. Uh, and bigger kids, it's easier. But the big problem that what we start to do in Israel is speaking in Zoom. Speaking Zoom doesn't work. Speaking two hours in Zoom all the day doesn't work. You have to have a platform uh, of speaking in Zoom and working alone together. And that they can do together, uh, learning together and, and working together all over. There are a few platforms that can do it. And there are a few schools. Like, like what? Um, you can do it in Google Classroom, but it's not so good because you need to go out and in all the time. You can do it with uh, Microsoft Teams, but also you need to go out and in. I'm working now with, with a very interesting high-tech uh, platform that I help them, named Classy. They have Zoom and and in one side and all the other classroom works on the other side uh, together. Uh, but there are a few more platforms that can do it. Um, there are little platforms because nobody thought we'll start learning all over like that. Um, but the truth is uh, that bigger kids need to start to learn alone. And that's the issue. Like with a, a teacher speaking like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and then they work together alone, but, but not with the teacher. And the teacher goes from one to the other and sees what they do and they learn, uh, learn together and think and learn to think and learn to write. Uh, and it's a very interesting issue. I, I'll say that the society in Israel is very different than the society in the States. Now you learned in the States for uh, half a year, uh, seven months. So at the line, at the grocery, everybody stand and waited. Nizal, when my mother made Aliyah, she didn't go through to the bus because everybody go, went from all the sides <laughs> and she, she didn't understand why she doesn't get to the bus. Uh, she can't go on the bus. So in Israel, the, for good and bad, people are less... Ordered. Disciplined. And, yeah, they're less disciplined. So kids have a harder time to listen and, and to learn. Uh, on the other side, there are more creativity. You have a lot of creative creative uh, issues in, in Israel. Startup nation, it's not... You have a lot of startups because people are very creative and, and very thinking out of the box. So I think... Yeah, a lot of disru- that, disruptive thinking, right? Disruptive thinking. I think it's a very big uh, opportunity of working on those sides of the kids. Uh, you have to have the, 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 the teachers. I'll tell in the, another side that 
is very, very important. What I'm very afraid is losing the uh, human uh, skills of speaking to each other, of getting connected to each other. I'm very concerned what happens to the kids all the day in the internet, what they see, what they get in, what the world that the, the internet uh, um, that they come to see in very young age in the internet when they hold the, all the days they're home and, you know, the parents are recording a podcast so they can't thing. see what come they're on. doing. Who would do such a thing? Right. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so from one side, I think we need to, to speak to them by Zoom or something. But with a lot of homeworking, a lot, a lot of homeworking, and go going over the homeworking and things that they think that they are creative, that they do a lot of things, and to give also grades on it. And the other side, I'm very concerned from this uh, situation that I don't think it will, it will go in a week or two. I think we're here for a few months at least, and uh, I hope we'll get it uh, out uh, in a good shape for me. Yeah, as, as do we all. Is this changing? I mean, I, I, I just published, uh, by the way, uh, well, it finally came out yesterday. I wrote it a couple months ago, um, how COVID is changing Jewish organizational Jewish life. You know, how the longer we get used to uh, learning lectures uh, via in the internet, the longer, um, you know, those who, 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 uh, who, who don't have the limitations on using technology on Shabbat get used to doing Shabbat services or holiday services via Zoom. And, you know, I've kind of spent the past few days looking to see what a lot of these communities um, are doing. Uh, and you see a lot of creative stuff. Some of them are just doing the service on Zoom. And then some of them are really taking it in different directions and trying unique approaches with uh, with uh, you know, production um, and creativity and all sorts of blends of pre-recorded and live, could we see something that changes how education works forever? I mean, if this goes on for a year and we have a whole generation that spent a year um, and you see, you see the educational system here, I'm seeing it from my wife trying to teach and from my kids trying to learn. It, I, it doesn't seem like it's working very well. Um, and, and, you know, kind of throw in the comment that in Israel we have, we seem to have the, the highest high tech and yet we seem to have the, the highest high tech and yet the official society of Israel and the government ministries are always way behind everyone else for some reason. Or, or it's like something that I once heard. It's, it's like Israel's like a particle physicist that doesn't know how to tie his own shoes. <laughs> yeah. We, we often describe it, um, uh, at the think tank where I work, is uh, there's two Israels. There's the Israel that's way ahead of the rest of the world on everything, and then the Israel that's lagging slightly behind the modern world on everything else. And um, so, I mean, what you, you were in the Ministry of Education, and now you're consulting to tech companies who are involved in new pedagogical platforms. Uh, what are they doing wrong right now? And you kind of touched on this, but what are they doing wrong right now, and where should we be that we could do now? There are a few questions here, but the, the first question we ask is if, somebody, if everything will change. So I'm now working with a very interesting organization that are the people that are establishing a high school that will be on the web. It will start for sick children, 
but but maybe it will change everything. You know, like I I am a counselor of, of pedagogical uh, counselor of them, and I help them. It, it's a very interesting uh, and unique. Uh, um, schools are just starting in these days, and maybe it will change everything. I think things that will change that uh, the group, the SITs, uh, maybe will start to be long learning work. We don't we won't have a test at the end, but uh, they'll do it on the web and, and they'll get scores. I started to work on it when I was uh, in charge of all the schools, all the schools in Israel, uh, and there are few Bagriot SITs that works like that today. In literature, there are 120 schools that work all the year on the on the computer, and the whole work is getting into their score, and you don't have a test at the end. And also we have it in history, and we have a start in, in, in Hebrew. So I think, I think things will change. I can't say how. And I don't know how, but but things will change. The same thing, school will change. You know, people after they daven in the garden, I'm not sure they'll run away back to to school. You know, and women that sat near their exposed uh, uh, and, and their children in in, uh, in davening in Rosh Hashanah, I'm not sure they'll run to Zat Nashim again uh, after it was finished. I don't know, but I suppose things will change. A very interesting issue in Israel, like you said, the, the system in Israel is uh, complex. I'll say it like that. Okay. <laughs> um, also because we have a very huge uh, differences between societies, Haredim and Arabic. Um, Haredim don't learn uh, English, don't learn math. And uh, um, Arab uh, societies um, a lot of times don't have money. And also the periphery in Israel is very, very behind. And, but also the, the good schools are very different than the, the schools in the state. What's interesting is that uh, despite the fact that a kid in Israel learns, you know, 12 years, but he is in the youth movement a lot more than in school a lot of times. And then he stops and goes three years to the army. And then he has a year, uh, maybe before a year of Mechina, and afterwards a year of going on in India. And uh, so he starts his life, uh, learning life, when he was is 25 or 26. I'm not sure the PhD people in Israel, the researchers in Israel, uh, are less good than in the States. And I think the, the whole... Living in Israel, with a situation in Israel of, 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 you know, you have to be very creative for, for, for living here. And also, you know, a lot of Jews, a lot of interesting issues and a lot of, I, I don't know how to say, and a lot of things we don't know. I had a visit once of the Minister of Education of Hong Kong. And he asked us, what is the real secret of Israel? So I brought the, the advisor of math, advisor of Fakeh, how do you say Fakeh? The over, overseer. Overseer of math and of, of science and of English. And everybody said what they said. And, I, and then I said to him, you know, there is another thing that we don't know how it changed things. But uh, I think it's another uh, thing that gets in. 
So he asked me, you're speaking about chutzpah? I told him, yeah, that's what I meant, chutzpah. There are things that you can't say how they change, but they change. And the whole environment of Israel is an environment that changes people for good and for bad, I think. And it makes a lot also in the education. You know, if every few years you have missiles here, uh, the Torah of Tel Aviv or, or in Beersheba, it changes people for good and for bad. I am disturbed, as I'm sure we all are, by the potential for human beings to lose the ability to socialize with others. And the experience of being in school, I mean, with, with due respect to technologies, um, it's priceless. You can't get back the, you know, we're a social species. Our, the entire evolution of our, of our progress is based on socialization with each other. Um, so as to the merits of this experiment, you know, I don't know how human beings become a virtual species. I don't know how we can say, you know, we're going to make our experience virtual with one another. Um, and Dan's heard me expound on this a lot. I mean, I, I don't like the use of the term the new normal because there's nothing normal about this. This is not the way that humanity is, is you know, designed to be. That being said, I don't know what else we're supposed to do right now. Um, you know, we, we don't. We can't be together in, in mass. Uh, schools are not going to shut down, you know, all education because we need to have education. Uh, otherwise, you just have lost years. And I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, could could there be different models of doing things? You know, one of the pro- one of the problems my wife has at her school is and I'm sure this is, this is the same at lots of schools is space. You know, they don't literally, they physically don't have the room to do the capsules that they need to do in the schools with enough classrooms to, um, you know, be able to serve the entire population of the school properly. And yet, you know, I see that there are many, many buildings and facilities that are not being used, uh, whether it's office space that's no longer being used or, you know, just, just space that's there. And I'm wondering, have we reached a time where we should say, you know, let's, let's use some of that startup nation spirit to think out of the box on you know not not creating the virtual platform but let's think outside the box on this whole experience what can we do you know we we feel confident that we can keep the kids in pods of 10 let's just say i'm just making this up let's look at the you know each each geographic location do they have the space are there are there people that are willing to donate space in their home are there people that are willing to donate, you know, office space that's not being used towards this? Does the government have an ability to pay people that aren't working right now to uh, to facilitate certain certain projects for this? Because it seems like this is a paramount issue, and it seems like, like Dan said, you know, my wife in the middle, you know, we're doing this right now this way because my wife's in the other room in a marathon 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Zoom session with you know a bajillion different classes, uh, and. And it just seems it seems like we can do better. Yeah, we can. We can do better. I don't know if we know what we can do better. Um, I think like we can do chavrutos for uh, children with children uh, by web. I think we can do. My wife is a counselor in a, in a high school, and now she works on the, on the teachers calling students only to speak to them, so <laughs> by Zoom like one on one. Now they're starting to do five uh, five kids to speak to the kids, what, how they are, what, what is it going through, what are they going through. Every teacher takes five kids 
I think we can do better, but the truth is like you, Benny, if you have uh, uh, ideas, very good ideas, I can uh, bring them to the Ministry of Education, uh, but I really don't know what can we do. Yeah, and, and I'll just add here, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, I guess, I guess there's not an answer, and I'm sure you don't want to insult uh, former colleagues in the education ministry, but in general, I think one of the frustrating things when, when we're just looking at Israel is you see that, like I said, there's two Israels. There's the unbelievably innovative, disruptive Israel that can, you know, there's the, you hear all the stories about how uh, Israeli firms and, and European and American and or, or Asian firms are working together, and the Israeli firm will figure out how to do something in, in a fraction of the time, every single time, because of this disruptive, innovative kind of approach to, to life. But at the same time, uh, we can't seem to be able to figure this out on a societal level. Um, and, and I see, you know, what my wife is going through, what my kids are going through. My neighbor happens to be the vice chair of the parents, uh, it's like the, the parents union like of, the of, um, of students. And so she's kind of trying to lobby for, she's trying to lobby for awards. And, um, and you say, why is it, is it that we don't have the right people? in the government that they just can't seem to move? Um, do we have kind of like, where? why are there not the innovators in in government, whether on the bureaucratic side or on the elected official side? Or if there are innovators in, in government, are they being stifled? Are they not being allowed to do what needs to be done? Because I think like what Benny said, um, we need to be able to kind of stop and, and just re-scramble everything. You know, in America, they like to use the word reimagine. We need to reimagine uh, if this COVID thing is going to happen for, for another month, and it seems like it's going to happen throughout this entire school year. It seems like we need to stop and reimagine education entirely. And, and, and you guys both said it, and I think you're absolutely right. We can't lose that human component. And sitting in Zoom eight hours a day doesn't work. And you have to have more you know, free, not free, but like uh, hands-on experience and, and small group work. And there has to be some kind of, I don't know, capsule. There, there's just a lot of rethinking that and, and of everything that needs to be happening. Can I say something that you'll take down after? After speaking? Sure. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to speaking once about finding, finding the three guys, the three... Yeah, from Gush Etzion in, uh, in 20... Shloshtanerim. Yeah, so I, I was a part of the five people that thought, rethought, rethought everything, and we found them after four days. So it's the same issue between the army and people that come from down and, and do everything. So uh, what what do you mean you found them after four days? We did did a rethinking about, and we came to the army with a rethinking uh, issue: how to find them. And uh, the, there was one commander in the army that told us go on it, and uh, one of us found it after four days, found them. How? How? Next time, next podcast. Okay, you you don't want to include that? Not here, but uh, if you want, we'll speak about it. It's, oh, like, it it's also, a very big issue, it's a very big issue. But, but it, well, okay. it's the same as what you said, you know, the big uh, authorities are very slow, and they think yes. very in, in inside the box. And they work very slow. And a lot of people from down can change everything. I don't know how to properly say this, but it seems like sometimes the people that are at the top of the power pyramid, in this case, maybe the education minister, Yoav Gallant, you know, they kind of, 
the immediate answer is like, is there going to be reimagining things? Are we going to you know, go out of the box? The answer is no. We're going to do things, you know, the same that I think he was quoted as saying, when we're done with this lockdown, we're going to go back to school and do things exactly the same way we did them before. Not meaning when COVID is over, we're going to go back, meaning like in like three weeks, a month, two months, whatever, we're going to go back and do exactly the same thing we did before. And it was it was in reference to a question about, uh, you know, did the fact that children in schools contribute to a spike in infections or something like that? Um, it could. Yeah, it, it, it could be. I was hearing some chatter recently about how um, perhaps this fall coming into winter, we're going to see a lot of. Um, the testing technology is going to be be much, much, much better, and we're going to see the release uh, or the mass release of personal testing products that allow us to, you know, instead of filling out a health declaration that you're, we have to sign as parents for our children for them to go to Ghan, we may be able to actually test our children at home every day with a COVID test, and if they pass that test, then they're clean, and and then they can go to school as normal. You know, it is as in any other time. And it might be that there are people in decision making places that look at that and say, you know, why are we going to go through the trouble of reinventing the box if our colleagues at the, you know, the health ministry are telling us, and it's just speculation, but they may be saying, you know, wait in three months or four months anyways, there are going to be these products that will allow us to, you know, clear people from COVID individually, personally. And then, you know, don't waste your time. But on the other hand, Benny, you understand that writing in pencil in a notebook, you know, today you need computers. Yeah. We're, we're, we're over it, you know. Things need to change. Now, maybe it will help us to change things. What will change and what can change and, you know, we need socialism, social relations, and we need each other, and we need to speak and to touch and to kiss our kids. But but there are things that have to change. Now, what will happen? I don't know. But but I hope things will change. You know, people won't students won't come with pencil and notebooks and, and yeah, you no, know, where yeah, it's crazy. I I you know um, I'm old enough that that we didn't have. The computers were around, but, you know, if, if one family had one computer when I was a kid, that was like a big deal. And certainly nobody had cell phones. So, I'm, you know, I'm still kind of in that generation where I still need to write things down on a pen and paper. Um, but, yeah, maybe uh, we're getting to that place um, in the evolution of our brains that pen and paper are, are over. And, uh, you know, the kids are only going to know digital and they're only going to know typing and even typing seems anachronistic if you start thinking about it, you know, using a keyboard to, to type things. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to attribute this quote to Ram Emanuel um, because it's, it's in an article I'm trying to get published right now that uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And uh, it's a crisis, but uh, we need to use it and we need to use this disruptive event to say, okay, this is time to move on to the next thing. And if Gallant or anybody else in the government is saying, we need to go back to exactly the way things were. I, th I think that's um, that's a mistaken approach. Um, that, that's a mistaken approach. It's a very short term. And uh, it would be great to see some of that famous Israeli ingenuity applied on the national level to our country and not just to the rest of the world. I mean, you know, you know the saying that the shoemaker uh, walks barefoot, uh, which in Hebrew is a famous expression. 
Um, it just, that's what kind of it just kind of feels like here in Israel. Like we, we see all these amazing Israeli innovations that are changing the world. And in the next couple of weeks, we actually uh, hope to have a guest on here who literally wrote the book on Israeli innovations that are changing the world. Um, our good friend uh, Avi Yorish. And um, why can't Israel run itself according to these kind of innovations and this kind of thinking? Normally. So, um, what, I'm just curious, what, what did you write your PhD on? My PhD was on a big rabbi of the 19th century uh, that was a very interesting rabbi, orthodox, that uh, was unbelievable open to science and unbelievable open to the world. And his son that was a doctor uh, from the university and was also a rabbi was a lot more uh, closer, closer than him and a lot more addicted. And then I changed my uh, issues of learning to education and to digital education in my post. And uh, then I wrote about Uman, and now I'm, I'm looking for another project if you have an idea. Wow, we have lots of ideas here. Um, <laughs> we have lots of ideas here. Who is this rabbi? I'm curious. Lifshitz, he wrote an unbelievable commentary on the Mishnah named Yechin and Boaz, a very, very... Uh, Interesting commentary. Uh, I asked, uh, what's his name, Professor Halivni, Professor Halivni, about uh, did they learn in Sigd, Yechin uh, and Boaz? So everybody learns them. Even in Masharim, they learned them. They don't know that he wrote in the commentary that there was a man before Adam Arishon, the first man, and about the evolution and about Darwin and everything. He's very, very open. And all over the Jewish world, also the modern Orthodox, also the ultra-Orthodox people learn him all the time. And so, Wait, so there, there was, there's a commentary by a famous and well-accepted Orthodox rabbi. First of all, just uh, when, when did he live? He passed away in 1960. In 18, 1960. 1960. So, sorry. 1860. So a rabbi in the mid-1800s, an Orthodox rabbi in the mid-1800s, writing about... Darwin, accepting Darwinism, accepting evolution, accepting, um, you know, that the earth is more than 5,000 years old. Yeah. Also, and, and that, that there were people before Adam and Eve. I'm curious, um, yeah, he, you know, how how did he reach these and how was this accepted? Yeah, he, 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 he wrote uh, people, uh, um, he wrote there were people before Adam and Eve. He wrote that there was a world before this world. And he wrote about the evolution a lot. Not about Darwin, but about the evolution. And he was accepted very uh, widely in the whole Jewish world because he was a very big Talmud Chacham. And he was one of the clearest documentary on the Mishnah. So people needed him to understand the Mishnah. And he, he, he was spread all over. There were uh, people that uh, took down parts of his uh, documentary. In the 1960, Masharim, they published um, the, his parish on the Mishnah without a few parts. But uh, mm-hmm. mostly it's all over and you can see it. And there's a very big Drush, Drush, Orachim, a, a paragraph of Orachim that he writes there. Uh, everything uh, very clearly and uh, very interesting, unbelievable. It's interesting, um, you know, and this is easily a topic for a different podcast that I think uh, we should jot down in our notes of future podcasts, but uh, I'll just comment on it. 
that um, in my conversations with a lot of secular Jews, um, they're always, you know, kind of one of the blockage points of them from from Judaism, certainly from Orthodox Judaism is, oh, you guys don't believe in evolution. You don't believe in, you know, the Big Bang Theory and all this. And I have to go back and say, uh, most Orthodox people I know uh, very much, there's no contradiction between science and everything science believes in and God and that we don't actually take the biblical creation stories as literal creation stories. And I think it's a big, uh, it's a big shock to a lot of people. Um, you know, we're not, most Orthodox people are not biblical literalists, literalists in that sense that we, uh, that we believe, you know, okay, the world is 5,000 years old and, and Adam right. were actually the first people, et cetera. It's not, so that's, uh, that's really interesting. It's not 5, I think, uh, yeah, we can definitely <laughs> do an episode on that. <laughs> what is the name 6, of six thousand years ago? What's the name? What are, what are the names of uh, uh, some of his <laughs> his writings or books? If if we want to explore them, his, his commentary is a big commentary on the Mishnah. The name is Yechinen Boaz. Yechinen Boaz on the Mishnah, and his name was Rabbi Lifshitz, and his son name name was Rabbi Baruch Yitzchak Lifshitz, Doctor Rabbi Baruch Yitzchak Lifshitz. His doctorate, his PhD is from Königsberg, and and and, the, uh, and that's the main commentary that he did. What I found was a few manuscripts that he wrote, uh, a lot, uh, and uh, after the Holocaust, uh, um, remained you know, in Poland. So I found them. it is fascinating. Um, Moshe, I, oh, our viewers will see this because this isn't a video podcast, but I can see on your screen, on my screen, that you have quite a, a bookshelf behind you. Um, and many of our people might want to know, uh, is there anything that, good that you're reading these days? You know, we're all kind of locked down. Can you recommend anything for our guests uh, or anything you're watching uh, on TV at this time? I have a very good uh, book uh, to recommend. The name is uh, Israel's okay. Journey to the Grave of I'm reading. I'm, uh, I'm reading a novel now. Uh, Hebrew novel uh, named Mitzvah uh, Mikrim, and I'm uh, in the middle of learning for Yom Kippur and uh, starting to prepare myself for Yom Kippur. That's all. I, I'm, I'm, I see Netflix, uh, The Last Survivor, I think that's Netflix. the name of the series. I haven't seen it. Okay. What's it about? It's about uh, the, the Congress in the States and the uh, Oh, is that the one where the where the entire Congress and President and Vice President are all killed yeah. in one shot, and and like a, some kind of low level cabinet secretary is the only survivor and becomes president overnight? Yeah, that is. So okay, so with Kiefer Sutherland, so I I started watching that because the premise is fascinating, but it was so. I mean, this was just my take. It was so unbelievably predictable <laughs> uh, after a few episodes. <laughs> so I had to, I had to just. Uh, I had to leave it, but the premise was super interesting. So we are in the fifth episode. We'll see what will go on. Okay. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Wow, fantastic. So uh, this has been a really uh, awesome journey to uh, understand Uman. And uh, for those who read Hebrew, uh, we will encourage uh, our listeners to buy the book. Where can they buy it? Is it available online? Online. At stores? Online. Online. Publishers all over. Okay. And we'll put the link up on our website as usual. 
Um, and if people want to follow what you're doing, um, I don't know if you post or if you write or if you publish still, uh, how can they follow you? I write on the Facebook and uh, I'll send my mail. If somebody has questions or something, I'll be happy. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, uh, Dr. Moshe Weinstock, uh, thank you so much for joining us and enlightening us and taking us on this uh, journey to Uman. Um, because so many Israelis who and not and Jews around the world who would want to be there can't go there, and I think uh, we were able to get a a taste of what's happening there. Um, so we definitely appreciate that and the uh, fascinating conversation on uh, the future of education. And thank you. Uh, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Have a good year. You too. Shana tova and gemar chatimatova. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.